the second Alpheus T. Mason lecture in constitutional law and political thought. My name is Shauna Sugru, and I'm the associate director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, which is sponsoring this event. And on behalf of our director, Robert P. George, who is rushing over at this instant, I want to thank all of you for being here this evening. Professor George has asked me to go ahead with the introduction, but if he comes in midway, I'm going to let him proceed. Uh, before introducing you to Professor Fears, an extraordinary teacher and scholar, I would like to recognize Mr. John P. Hansel, class of 46, and his wife, Frances. For the last three years, Mr. Hansel has made this highly acclaimed lecture series possible. He was a devoted student of that great McCormick professor of jurisprudence, Alpheus T. Mason, and he created this lecture series to stand as a tribute to Professor Mason and his former students. It is because of Mr. Hansel that all of us enjoy this important venue through which great scholars and jurists enrich our understanding of politics, law, and history. So please join me in extending our heartfelt thanks to Mr. Hansel for making this lecture series possible. Professor of Classics at the University of Oklahoma, where he holds the G.T. and Libby Blankenship Chair. He is the author of eight book-length studies, three volumes of edited works, and over a hundred articles and reviews in classics and history. What is particularly extraordinary about Professor Fears, however, is that he is one of this nation's best teachers. He has, on 17 occasions, been honored for undergraduate teaching, including being named University of Oklahoma's Professor of the Year in 1996, 1999, and 2000. He might also be known to many of you as the author of a widely acclaimed series of books on tape produced by the teaching company. Included among these popular tapes is a 36-lecture course on the history of freedom from which he takes his inspiration for this afternoon's lecture on freedom and the superpower. It's a great honor for us to host Professor J. Rufus Fears. Please join me in extending to him a very warm welcome. Well, it's my great pleasure to be here, and I thank you very much for this invitation. And, uh, We are on patrol tonight in the Middle East. American soldiers, men and women, in armored convoys, patrol in Baghdad and in the Middle East, following in the footsteps of so many conquerors who have come before, so many armies before them. The charioteers of Ramses II, the Pharaoh of Egypt in the 13th century BC, the Macedonian phalanx of Alexander the Great, the Roman legionnaires of the Emperor Trajan in the 2nd century AD, the crusaders of Richard the Lionheart, the soldiers and scientific advisors of the Emperor Napoleon, and the Camel Corps of Lawrence of Arabia. All have come out of a mixture of self-interest and altruism, 
All have found that military intervention in the Middle East led to occupation and then to attempts at nation building. All sought to stabilize the Middle East and all ultimately failed. The Middle East has been the graveyard of so many imperial aspirations. America today stands at a crossroads. I mean that quite literally. America is the freest nation in the world. And because of the United States, more people live in freedom today than any other time. We are the freest nation in the world because of our Constitution. That's why I'm so honored to be here and to be part of such a series. But more people live in freedom today all over the world because the United States is a superpower. In fact, it's my suggestion to you that there have been two, only two, absolute superpowers in all of history. And by that I mean nations that are absolutely dominant militarily, economically, politically, and culturally. The first of these was the Roman Empire of the Caesars of the first and second centuries A.D., and the other is the United States today. The question that we must decide, perhaps even in this generation, is whether it is possible both to be a superpower and to have a Republican Constitution based upon political liberty and political involvement. The Romans faced that same decision two millennia ago, and they chose to be a superpower and gave up their political liberty. They accepted the dictatorship of the Caesars, and they would have told you a century later that they had made a good choice. More people lived in peace and prosperity because of the Roman Empire than ever had lived in peace and prosperity before. And there are areas, including the Middle East, that still today have not recovered that peace and prosperity that they enjoyed under the Roman Empire of the Caesars. My topic this afternoon is, what do the lessons of Roman history have to say to us today? And that is not a fashionable topic, learning the lessons of history and using history as a guide to decision-making in the present, even to look into the future. Um, academic historians just don't do that. And nobody is more, no, more narrow in their outlook than ancient historians. Maybe only Egyptologists are more narrow than ancient historians. They write for a very select group of people themselves. And attempts at writing massive histories based on learning the lessons of history have not been very successful. I think of Paul Kennedy's book on the rise and fall of the great empires, the Fukuyama book on the last man and the end of history, and even the recent book by Niles Ferguson on empire. And all three of those are written with no real regard for ancient history, for the lessons of the classical past. Our model instead should be Edward Gibbon and the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon's first volume was published in 1776, its last volume in 1789. It thus spans the period from the Declaration of Independence to the ratification of the Constitution. That is no coincidence. It was an age which looked to the classical past, to Rome and to Greece, for lessons in shaping the present and looking into the future. Gibbon wrote his history as a member of Parliament. I was, he said, a silent but very attentive listener 
to the great debate of the age, in which the leading personalities of the day discuss the central issue, the independence of America. And I found my time in Parliament as a training in patriotism, what Gibbon called the first virtue of a historian. Gibbon believed that the historian should not comment directly, but instead obliquely. But he was writing his history of the Roman Empire in the belief that the British Empire was in decline and fall. And he wrote in a letter, my book on the Roman Empire goes fast, but not as fast as I believe the fall of England. So he's very aware of this. And the founders of our country believed that Roman history in particular was the most important single discipline for every citizen of a free republic. Commerce was important, mathematics were important, these were all important, but every citizen needed to study the classical past. To them, the classical past was a laboratory in which you see what had worked in the past and what had failed. And understanding the classical past, learning from it, the founders crafted our Constitution to reflect what they saw as virtues in the Roman Constitution. The balance and checks between a Senate that guided foreign policy, controlled the purse strings, a strong executive. But they also believed that such a Constitution, no matter how well crafted, must be vitalized by civic virtue, by the willingness of the individual citizen to place his or her interests below that of the good of the whole. And they believed that the Roman Empire had risen to its status of greatness because of its constitution and the civic virtue of its citizens. And they believed, like Edward Gibbon, that it ultimately failed, and by failure they meant it decided to be a superpower and give up its political liberty. That was a real failure. That it had failed because of the demise of civic virtue among the ordinary citizens. And the founders believed, like Gibbon, like Edward Gibbon, that ultimately empire and liberty were incompatible. That the wealth and affluence of empire would corrode that civic virtue which made liberty possible. That was their view. The Romans were the most successful <coughs> empire builders in history. And under their republican constitution, which had two strong consuls as commander-in-chief, which had a senate composed of some 300 individuals, all of whom had served as magistrates, all of whom had been elected thus by the Roman people and then indirectly co-opted into the senate who served for life with no salary. Amazingly enough, with no salary whatsoever, they served just as a public duty. And then all decisions of war and peace, taxation, these were ultimately made by the Roman people as a whole, by the Roman citizens as a whole. They alone could decide about war and peace, and the Senate only offered advice. So the assembly of the people, the Senate, the consuls, what the ancients called, what Polybius called, what John Adams also saw in part as a balanced constitution in which the essential elements of government, 
the need for a strong executive, the need for a broad base of popular support, the need for advice by a small group of well-trained experts were equally balanced. Under this Republican Constitution, the Romans first expanded all over Italy, defending their liberty as they saw it. And by 270 BC, when they had gained control of Italy, they then found cause for war with Carthage. The great struggle was fought between 264 and 241 BC, in which the Romans acquired Sicily. But like the First World War of the 20th century, this first war between Rome and Carthage settled little. In 218, war broke out again. And under the military genius of Hannibal, the Romans were brought to the brink of national annihilation. And they emerged from that war, the leadership, the Senate, determined never to be in that situation again. And no sooner had they defeated Hannibal than they began to expand westward to Spain, but also into the Middle East. And by the first century BC, the Romans were absolute masters of their world. Now the Romans of the first century BC compare in many ways to our own day. That is to say, Rome was still a republic, wealthy and all-powerful. But its republican constitution had changed. Vested interests controlled the Senate, corporate Greed reached levels of shocking rapacity, and the ordinary Roman citizen had simply lost confidence in the Republican government. Rome was unable, despite its power, even to deal with rogue states upon its frontiers. Terrorism existed. Roman citizens were taken hostage and held kidnapped. In fact, there was an act of terrorism in which 80,000 Roman citizens on one day throughout Asia, Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today, were put to death. So terrorism, rogue states, a corrupt Senate, and the loss of public confidence in free institutions to solve this problem. In fact, politics became a kind of joke, but it was deadly serious. And ultimately, the Romans turned to the one man who could solve their problems, Gaius Julius Caesar, a genius, a master of superb Latin style, a military genius, a consummate politician. And the Romans would accept two centuries of military dictatorship. First under Julius Caesar, and then under perhaps the most gifted single statesman in history, his adopted son, Caesar Augustus, who truly established this imperial system. And when he died in 14 AD, the Romans had made their choice. They had given up liberty, given up elections, in order to have the security a world empire. And the Roman Empire of the first and second centuries AD was a period called by Edward Gibbon the most prosperous and happy time in the history of the human race. The Roman Empire of the first and second centuries it stretched from Scotland all the way out to Iraq from the North Sea to the sands of the Sahara. If you were going to take that voyage today through the Roman Empire of the second century AD, you'd start out in Britain, cross into France, Germany, Belgium, Holland, on down into Switzerland, on down into Austria and Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, into Croatia and Slovenia, and Serbia and Macedonia, to Greece, into Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, on back up through Tunisia, 
Algeria, Morocco, and into Spain. If you were going to take that trip today, you would need on your own perhaps a dozen languages. You'd need to change your money a dozen times. You'd probably need two dozen visas. And there would be places you would not want to go. Would you want to go to Libya today? Could you go to Libya today? I don't know. Hilarious closed off to you. Not so in Rome of the Caesars. One language, Latin, carried you anywhere in that empire. There was one currency, the coinage of Rome. There was one law, the law of Rome. And it guaranteed you individual rights. Freedom of speech. Freedom of appeal. <coughs> freedom of legal procedures. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, you remember that St. Paul is arrested. And the tribune is about to give him a beating. And Paul says, you cannot beat me. I am a Roman citizen. I have not yet been condemned. And the tribune says, I don't believe you. And Paul said, here are my papers. And the tribune immediately becomes worried that Paul is going to bring him up on charges of violating his civil rights. So the guarantee of individual rights throughout this empire, one law, one language, one currency. Now, that empire was guarded its vast frontiers by the most cost-efficient and best military force the world had ever seen. 360,000 men guarded that frontier. It had a superb infrastructure. Roman roads. Still today, where I do my archaeological work, every day I drive over a Roman road built in this very period. It still carries all the heavy traffic of the region. There's a bridge in Rome built in 63 BC that still carries traffic. I don't know how it is in Princeton, no doubt it is better, but in Oklahoma, my car is not constantly knocked out of whack by driving over potholes. My streets flood. There's a street called literally Flood Street because it floods all the time there. The Romans had a superb sewage system. It's wonderful infrastructure. Aqueducts. The ordinary Roman was supplied with a larger per capita amount of pure fresh water with all that means for hygiene than was an inhabitant of Chicago or Paris in 1920. So for this peace and security, the ordinary Roman worked two days a year to pay the taxes. Because the emperors understood that if people were kept, kept their money, then they invested it. You could make 6%, in fact, on a certificate of deposit in Rome. And they invested their money, and they were prosperous and affluent. And in fact, the empire rested upon a sturdy foundation of middle-class citizens, patriotic and also civic-minded, willing to spend the money that they had saved on public projects. It was a free market economy in which the goods of the entire world, all the way from China, came to the markets of cities like Pompeii and Leptus Magna, with a minimum of government regulation. So affluence and peace. The historian Tacitus in the second century AD bemoaned the fact that he lived when he did because it was so peaceful. There were no wars to write about, and thus he was denied the opportunity that Libya had to celebrate the martial grandeur of Rome. And there was even social mobility. You could begin life as a peasant, join the Roman army. Your grandson might become emperor of Rome. It happened. You could begin life as a slave and end up as a multi-millionaire. It happened. So social opportunity, peace, prosperity, affluence. And this 
economic prosperity, this peace and prosperity, this unity of the entire Mediterranean world under Roman rule, brought about a period of cultural creativity with few parallels in all of history. Perhaps the Athenian democracy of the 5th century BC, and certainly our own age of technology and science. But the Roman Empire of the 2nd century laid the cultural foundations for the next thousand years of European history. In the column of Trajan at Rome was laid the narrative art that would form the basis of Christian iconography, carrying the message of the salvation in pictures to those who could not read. In literature, for example, and in Roman law, this is the age of the great jurists. And they laid the foundation of that law which would be adopted by Christianity and still forms the legal base for about half of the world, Roman law. It was the age of Galen in medicine, whose textbooks of medicine would still form the basis of learning in the 16th century in Europe and in the Arab world. It was the age of Ptolemy, the geographer, and his maps. And even his eras were worthwhile, for he thought that China was closer to Europe than it was, and using those maps, Christopher Columbus set out in search of China. So in science, medicine, in the law, in art, in architecture, the pantheon of the Emperor Hadrian laid the base for that architecture of space that would reach triumphant crescendo in the Gothic cathedrals. So creativity as well. But for all their affluence, for their creativity, for their peace and the prosperity, the Romans also produced a remarkable set of leaders. Men like Augustus, men like Vespasian and Titus, the Empress Trajan and Hadrian and Marcus Aurelius. And they created a small, dedicated group of bureaucrats who governed that empire so well that even the eccentricities of a Caligula were little more than a blip upon the overall scene of prosperity. But for all their success, the Romans never solved two fundamental problems of foreign policy. The Middle East, and what we would call today Central Europe. Central Europe was a vast ocean of warlike, independent tribes, Germanic, Slavic, even Turkic. And there was the Middle East. And there, Rome's great foe were the Iranians, what they called the Empire of Parthia. Those two great foreign policy challenges were never really solved. Julius Caesar had, had his idea. It was his determination to conquer both Iran and then to bring his army back through Central Europe and conquer the Germans. He was planning just such an expedition when he was assassinated in 44 BC. But his successor, Augustus, chose not to follow that imperial expansion. Instead, he reached a means of accommodation and negotiated peace with Iran, and he left the advice to make no further expansion into Central Europe. Emperors like Trajan from time to time sought to revitalize expansion, but ultimately the idea was given up. And the great wall that was built by the Emperor Hadrian, stretching 77 miles across 
the top of what we call England today, was the monumental statement of walling out foreign problems. But you cannot wall out foreign problems. And in the latter part of the second century, the Germanic tribes forming new coalitions swept across the borders into the fairest parts of the empire like Gaul. And in the third century, Iran became revitalized under religious fundamentalism. And by the middle of the third century, a Roman emperor had been taken into captivity by the Iranians, skinned. His skin dyed purple and hung up in one of their temples. Ultimately, the Roman Empire would recover, but at a cost that transformed it. It became highly regulated, its economy highly regulated, taxes became very heavy to pay for an ever-larger bureaucracy and an ever-larger military force that was ever more ineffective. And ultimately, the public spirit of those middle-class citizens who had supported the empire was destroyed. And by the 5th century, Germanic chieftains dwelt in the half-ruined palaces of the Caesars in Rome, and a triumphant Islam in the 7th century would carry all before it in the Middle East. And the Romans had failed. But they left behind a legacy, a legacy of greatness and law. Even the calendars, why the very fact that we're scheduled on this date, as a matter of fact, speaks to the legacy of Rome and the great Julius Caesar. He was faced with a problem about the Roman calendar. He didn't set up a committee. He just acted alone. Got the best astronomer in the world. Had a calendar created. And you still set your watches by it. You still fly by it. So a legacy they left. But they had failed and fallen. We Americans are the modern Romans. And as Tacitus said of the Romans, we are driven forward by the destiny of empire. We cannot see ourselves objectively, but later historians will look back and say, the Americans, like the Romans, were the most successful empire builders in history. When they won their war against Britain, they negotiated a peace treaty that left them in control of an unconquered empire stretching out to the Mississippi. Isn't that true? And making use, manipulating European political rivalries. Under President Monroe, they established their hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. They fought a successful and popular war with Mexico and once again annexed an empire vast by European standards. By 1890, they had expanded across the continent so that no frontier was left. And war with Spain brought them overseas possessions. In World War I, they entered upon the world scene to make the world safe for democracy. In World War II, they learned the folly of isolationism. And after World War II, began a great plan to build back Europe, shouldered the burdens of the Cold War, and with the collapse of the Soviet Union, stepped into that great power vacuum. <coughs> Forgive me if I keep saying they for the Americans. I was talking to a group of historians a couple of weeks ago and I said us and they got mad at me. They chastised me. They said I lost my objectivity. So I will try to say they. 
Though uh, Gibbon says it is the duty of a, of a patriot to extol the virtues of his country. But um, I will say they as much as I can and chastise me if I forget and say us so we. At various points, we have been warned against this. Now, George Washington warned us against entanglements in Europe. At the end of the American Civil War, nothing seemed easier or more justified than the conquest of Mexico and of Canada. But we held back from it. At the time of the Spanish-American War, there were those who said, you will be corrupted by empire. And at the end of World War I, President Wilson's dream of a League of Nations was shattered by those who said, no more foreign entanglements. But here we are. We can avoid calling ourselves an empire, though there's nothing bad about that word etymologically. It's just from the Roman word imperium, which means power. Like the Greek word arche, it just means power or rule. But here we are, the superpower. And the question is, what are the lessons of history? What do the Romans teach us? Well, one, they tell us the lessons of Roman history. That once you have embarked upon the path of empire, you cannot draw back. That was not a Roman discovery. Pericles told the Athenian audience, the first democracy in history, it may have been wrong for you to start this empire, but you have it now. And those who tell you that you can give it up are leading you down the path of destruction. You have become too hated and too envied. It was the same Pericles who told an Athenian audience that Athens was the model for the world. Those, that very phrase, the model for the world, was used by both then Vice President Gore and now President Bush in the debates of 2000. We are the model for the world. But Pericles told his model for the world, you are now an empire and you cannot go back from that. Secondly, Empire and democracy are, over a short run, fully compatible. Rome rose to power as a republic, and the Athenian democracy combined the first democracy in history with the first great Greek empire. And in the 20th century, there has been no greater democratic statesman than Winston Churchill, and no stronger supporter of what was all that was good about the British Empire. But the lesson of Roman history says that in the long run, empire and political liberty are incompatible. That you cannot be both a superpower and a republic. It would say, in fact, that you cannot govern a superpower, a world state, with a constitution made for a small republic. <coughs> Remember, when our constitution was created, the United States was 13 small states along the eastern seaboard. Population of 4 million. A city like Philadelphia had perhaps 60,000. And when George Washington wanted to go somewhere, he went the same way that Julius Caesar had. <coughs> he would shudder at the comparison, but he would go the same way. He walked, he sailed, he rode a horse. And a message was sent in the same way. But now, with this vast country across the continent, across the world, and we communicate why you could right now on your cell phone. Couldn't you call Australia? Couldn't you type out an email to Australia? Yes, and get an answer while we're sitting here. 
And yet that same Constitution still governs us and gives us liberty under law and prosperity in a world of technology that not even Benjamin Franklin could have imagined. I think that is a remarkable achievement to have crafted such a Constitution that still gives us liberty and prosperity today. But it was crafted for a small nation. And we are now a superpower. In the same way the Constitution of Rome was crafted for a small republic by the Tiber River. And it was not capable of bearing the burden of world empire. That is ultimately why the Roman Republic failed and the Romans turned to the military dictatorship of the Caesars. So ultimately empire and a republican constitution are not compatible. That is the lesson of Roman history. That such a superpower is best governed, and this is just the Romans speaking, from the standpoint of a beneficent despotism. Not necessarily a Caesar, but a strong centralized government. A benevolent autocracy. That is what the Romans found to be true. That such a benevolent autocracy governing a world state will bring an unparalleled level of prosperity to the world it governs. That under that benevolent world state, the ordinary individual will enjoy not political liberty, not the right to vote, but what many people find far better, the right to live as they choose, the right to follow their occupations, take care of their family, make money and spend it, and local control. The Roman Empire, in fact, allowed a great deal of local control. It was multicultural, it was diverse, it was tolerant. Roman emperors built temples to the gods of Gaul and to Egypt. And in a Gallic courtroom, you could plead your case in Celtic. Or in the East, you could plead it in Syriac. In Egypt, you could appeal it in Egyptian. So it was multicultural, diverse, and tolerant. So the freedom of the ordinary individual was enhanced. On the other hand, such a world state must control. It must increasingly interfere into every aspect of life. And the drain upon the economic resources of a world state are enormous. It will undermine even the most vital economy. And the soldiers of a world state will, whether the emperor wishes it or not, be called the policemen of the world. They will have to guard every frontier and be involved everywhere in that empire. And the drain upon the manpower will be incessant. And ultimately, that superpower will fall. And in the case of the Romans, it fell to a coalition of forces they could not have imagined and ignored for too long out of the arrogance of power. But what remains is the legacy of that world empire. The legacy of the Roman Empire. Not just law, not just architecture, but a legacy that not even the Emperor Hadrian, with all his wisdom and creativity, could have imagined. That is to say, the greatest single legacy of the Roman Empire, and this is just a historical statement, not a religious statement, was Christianity. Growing up there on the far frontier of the empire, 
the unity of the empire, culturally and economically and politically, allowed this religion to spread all over. St. Paul appeals to Roman law for protection. He has granted his freedom of speech even while he is in Rome to preach the gospel. And ultimately, Christianity would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that Roman Empire and its law enshrined the idea that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Aristotle had taught that by nature Greeks were superior and barbarians were by nature slaves. Alexander the Great knew differently. And the legacy of Alexander the Great, developed by Cicero and written into Roman law, was natural law. And the Code of Justinian begins by stating that all men are by nature free and equal. And adopted into Christianity, that would pass on down and resonate in our own Declaration of Independence. That was the greatest single legacy of the Roman Empire. Now America stands at this crossroads. We have the technology. We have the scientific ability to create a world state based upon this communication and technology that brings indeed a long-lasting prosperity to the world. It is possible. The question is, are we willing to pay the price? And history will judge us. No matter what decision we make, it will judge us. And it will ask the question whether we left the world as the Romans ultimately did, a legacy of greatness, or whether we go down as just one more nation that failed in the Middle East and left its ideals buried there in that graveyard of empire. Well, thank you for listening to me. I think we understand now your well-deserved reputation as one of this nation's great, great lecturers. That was really wonderful. The floor is open for questions, and it is a tradition at the Madison program that we take questions from students first. Uh, so if any of the students here have, have questions, I encourage you to, to ask now. Students of all ages. <laughs> That question Edward Gibbon never really had to answer. Uh, though, in fact, talking about liberty uh, in his book, um, Gibbon was a member of Lord North's cabinet, or Lord North's government at least, and he had a sinecure. And uh, in return for that, he wrote papers, one in French justifying the British attitude towards the Americans. And because he got a salary for it, and he could buy a better variety of pork while he wrote his history. <laughs> but his uh, work in the celebration of liberty and the dangers of what the Romans had done in oppressing their provincials was read to him on the floor of Parliament, asked to answer. So historians should have to answer a question like that. 
Well, I would say that our first method in learning from the Romans is to understand this question of foreign policy. And it seems to me that the two areas that the Romans failed to deal with are with us still, Central Europe and the Middle East. Central Europe for us is Russia. Russia is a vast land, populous, wealthy in natural resources. It has a history that is xenophobic and chauvinistic and expansionistic. And the Russians feel a deep humiliation at the loss of their empire. Now, they expected us, when communism collapsed, to go in with a martial plan and to rebuild that nation on a basis that would ultimately make democracy viable. We have just not done that. It is now armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons, feels a humiliation, and I believe it's simply waiting for a powerful figure like a Hitler to seize control. And we will be the harvest of that. 1999, I told an audience that our failure to act decisively at the time of the Iranian hostage controversy and in the first Gulf War had left us with a bitter harvest that we would one day reap. And I have never been so sorry to be so right. We have not solved the Middle East, and it is there. I think it would be, and you're just going to get mad at me if I say this, but I think we must stay the course. And we must put our treasure and our manpower into rebuilding that area on what will ultimately be a stable democratic basis. I think to withdraw now would be catastrophic for us and catastrophic for the Middle East. Can I ask you about closing our borders? <coughs> The immigration in Maryland. In 1965, LBJ and Ted Kennedy in Congress said that only 15% are allowed in from Europe. I'm sure you know that. No. In 1965, it was passed still good today. 15% from Europe, that's almost just outrageous. No, I, I believe in lots of immigration. I think mean, everything that's good in our country has come from many different kinds of immigrants. And as I say, the Roman Empire was. Tolerant and diverse and multicultural. And the Roman emperors were ruled with great wisdom, who had been born in Spain, who had been born in North Africa. So it's an interesting parallel with ours from the point of view of actively fostering multicultural and tolerant and diversity. However, the Romans also believed that a nation must share, it's a very good point that you raised, a common set of cultural and religious values moral values. And they believe those values came to them best from the legacy of classical Greece. And so they fostered the culture of Greece, of ancient Greece, as a means of giving a union and coherence to all their people. And they also taught that what a Greek thinker like Plato or even Homer had taught was a set of values that all people in fact shared in terms of morality. So that's a wonderful question. With the benefit of some time, I see many hands now up in the audience. Uh, yes, Jashar. <coughs> I was just wondering, you talk about staying the course and bringing democracy ultimately to the Middle East. Do, do you believe that perhaps some things are just impossible so to, to achieve, such as that, especially today with radical Islam seeming to be predominant in that region, which is totally antithetical to that's a very wise question that you ask. And you may very well be right. Uh, the Athenians, the Athenian democracy, 
believed that they were unique in a sense with their democracy, but they also believed that they could be exported. And they tried. And they also had a foreign policy based on trying to help the weak against the strong. And it, they failed. They failed to do both. And they lost first their empire and then ultimately their independence. It is a tremendous challenge. But I think America does have that the Athenians did not, is the communication possibilities of our technology. And that is always something I wonder about, whether technology has put us on a totally different plane than any society that has gone before us. That is the question. But that's very wise of Professor Cordovilla. I, I don't know whether, well, this is not really a question, but something that I'd like you to react to. Uh, America's founders were well-read people and were quite conscious of what Rome was all about. And they made, uh, made it a point, despite all of the symbolism in Roman architecture uh, that they adopted, they made it very, very, very obvious that they were not going to imitate Rome. This, uh, the purpose of, of America was not to conquer the world, but rather to, quote, live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, as per Paul's letter to Timothy. Now, uh, they were also very clear about what it was that made us different, prosperous, and peaceful, namely, a peculiar kind of virtue. John Adams put it, the, uh, almost colloquially, the rest of the world was sunk over its head in sin, and we were sunk up to our eyeballs in it. Uh, and we were going to have a hard time just keeping the eyeballs above. Now, uh, Adams wrote a, a book which, had been, which was cited again and again by all sorts of, uh, of successors of his, to the effect that uh, the rest of the world simply was not interested and was not capable of living as we do. And furthermore, all agreed that degraded as they might be, they had every right to live as, as they could. And we have no, had no right whatsoever to force them to live any other way because the right that we claim for ourselves in the Declaration of Independence uh, was a right which belonged to all men. Uh, the only good government is government by consent, and certainly any government that we would impose in the name of justice would not be a, govern a government that would be legitimate by those very standards. So to put it all together, uh, America's foreign policy aimed at preserving America's own virtue above all other things. All other facets of American foreign policy aimed at that. It was only with Woodrow Wilson of Princeton fame that, uh, that we began to try to make the world over in our image. Uh, making things in one's own image, of course, is an attribute of God, not man. Uh, the book by which America's fathers lived said that I mean, God did that, man did not do it. So uh, I would hope that you would address uh, the, uh, the question of what happens, or whether it is possible for a country to begin to live according to a, uh, to, to live a way of life 
opposite that which its founders intended. Is it possible, Machiavelli would argue otherwise, but is it possible to shift the basis of one's own existence and still prosper, or is that a fool's errand? Well, that's a wonderful question. Let me take it through two <coughs> parts. One, how did the founders view the Romans? And then this question of foreign policy. And uh, the founders studied the classics, even ones like uh, Benjamin Franklin, who were self-educated. In fact, one of the first books off of his um, press was a translation of the classics, Plutarch's Lives. So yes, they studied them. And they believed that they were aspects of the Roman Constitution that could be crafted. Though they were most interested in reading the Roman Constitution through the spectacles of the English Constitution. And that was certainly their primary model. Uh, but what they did do is think historically. That is to say, they believed that historical thinking was more important than historical knowledge. It didn't matter if you knew the names of the consuls of the year 505 BC. What did matter is that you looked at the past as giving you lessons in the future. Not infallible laws, but lessons that you could be guided by. So that's why Rome is so important to them. Now as for your foreign policy, I would have to differ with you. It seems to me the American Civil War was very much about imposing our one way of government upon another. And the American South felt itself to be a nation and was utterly crushed. And we imposed our government upon them. And I think most of us would agree that was a good thing. But that was a war for democracy. And Abraham Lincoln saw it as a universal conflict. And the Gettysburg Address goes back to this question of what is the foundation of our country? Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And the war was about trying to prove that. And this country was humanity's last best hope. So that has been our foreign policy. After all, whatever we call the war, it was essentially a foreign war. Then, World War II showed us that, one, you cannot isolate yourself, it comes home. And secondly, there are countries where you can build democracy. Neither Japan nor Germany had a real tradition of democracy, and it failed utterly in the Weimar period in Germany. And we rebuilt it economically and in terms of their politics. And the greatest successes in all of American foreign policy are Germany today and Japan. So we have done it, and it can be done, and I think there is most certainly this other aspect of American foreign policy. And some of the greatest idolists we have had are Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson, Lyndon Johnson. And these were men who saw this great mission of America. Some like Lincoln, we admire. Wilson, I, you may think is a law, but I think is a very great man. And some like Johnson, ended their lives bitter. But there's a very strong element in American foreign policy. There's a gentleman here who looks like he might want to rejoin her to Professor Cotabella's point. Please. Just wondering, first of all, kind of two, two, two-fold question. Who are we? You know, we, just me and the American citizen. I'm going to call it the applied of the United States. And I don't want to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Number two, who are the theoreticians today? You know, the Franklins, the Monroe's, are they neoconservatives or are they? They're just 
You didn't mention it, but then. Just, sorry, uh, for those who might not have heard at the back, the question was, uh, who are we as Americans and who are our, our theoreticians who are guiding us today? Go ahead. Well, I get a question. He asked, uh, you know, do we want to give up our quality of life in order to embark upon this imperial mission? And I believe that the answer may very well be that most Americans will say no. That is why Pericles and the Athenians wondered whether a democracy could really govern an empire because people are not willing to pay that price and there's too much change in government. And if we have a, an election and say if someone very different than President Bush is elected in 2004, we'll probably have a major foreign policy shift. So you're quite right. There would be many Americans who say, let's take care of ourselves. And that is just a fact. And it may be the right answer. They could harken back to George Washington and this other strain of American foreign policy. The question, though, would be whether you're allowed to do that. You, because you see America today is simultaneously envied and hated, admired and reviled. And September 11th, if it taught us anything, is that doesn't matter what foreign policy we may want to pursue, the outside world cannot be walled out. So that's the point. The outside world cannot be walled out. The wall, not the wall of hatred across uh, Britain. You cannot wall it out. That's what September 11th should show us. Uh, now, the second part of your question was... Oh, well, uh, now, I, I would not even begin to get into that. It is an interesting question that um, this young republic produced this galaxy of statesmen who create one, the Declaration of Independence, declared their independence from the superpower of the day, won it on the field of battle, and then crafted this constitution that still functions for us today. Uh, we just don't have anybody like that. It's just a fact. Uh, so I will not give you any names. I do think, and you know, you get mad at me again, you'll even boot me out <laughs> But I think President Bush is a man of integrity. I think he has made hard decisions. I think he communicates with the American people. He's not eloquent. The American people sense in him a Honesty. I see. <laughs> With the potential to be a great statesman. There. So, you asked me for a name, I gave it to you. That's right here. Uh, you mentioned Christianity as. Uh, something of, of a windfall, Christianity predominance as a windfall in the Roman Empire and uh, how it was easy to spread across this uh, central part in the world's history, the central region in world history. And America was founded on so many Christian ideals and is still guided today, I would say, by uh, uh, Christian ideals in our foreign policy right now. Uh, you know, it seems that uh, our president very frequently brings up uh, quotes from the Bible and thinks with a biblical, uh, orthodox Christian perspective. Uh, I'd like you to comment, if you can, on where, what kind of role you see Christianity playing in uh, the rest of America's tenure as a superpower, if you, especially in the Middle East, since it's such a radically different place religiously. Well, that's a very interesting question. I don't know if I'm really the person to, to comment on it. Uh, but your question starts with the historical character of Christianity. And uh, Christianity certainly emerged within the framework of the Roman Empire. The whole life and mission of Jesus, including his trial, occurs historically within the framework of the Empire. 
Paul is a Roman citizen. Christianity is transformed by Paul into a form of religion that is comprehensible to the Greco-Roman world, and thus transformed from a sect of Judaism into a, a form that this world can accept. And of course, the Romans persecute the Christians, but ultimately the Emperor Constantine makes it the official faith of the Roman Empire, and its spread becomes part of Roman official policy. Um, there is nothing, though, in Christianity that I think makes a political statement about foreign policy. And uh, while Christianity also teaches that all men and women are free and equal in the eyes of God, it also recognizes the institution of slavery in the same way that natural law in Cicero uh, recognizes it. Uh, we have had great leaders like Abraham Lincoln who were profoundly religious. And the Gettysburg Address places the sacrifice of the Civil War into the context of the whole mystery, the deepest mystery of Christianity. Um, however, I think we live in a very secular age. That is just a fact. There are many religious people, many deeply believing people, Islamic and Jewish and Christian. But our society is secular. And I don't know if any foreign policy that evoked religion would be very successful with the American people as a whole, and certainly not with the media. See, that's another great difference between us and the founders of our country. That is to say, the all-pervasive power of the media that can change within a matter of months how we view an event like the war in Iraq. So that's a good question that you asked. <coughs> yes, Professor Tillis. Um, as a political scientist, I had some. I, uh, I, I have to commit the crime of asking about your methodology. Um, that is, there's a as a as a story, so it's an ancient historian. The uh, the temptation is always to fall back on a cyclical story, on a cyclical argument, and uh, cyclical arguments all end up with collapse, right? That is almost inevitably going back. Given, right? There's a there's some mechanism that causes something to go through very regular kind of patterns that end up with a kind of conclusion. And if you believe that, right, then you believe that there are exportable lessons that can be drawn from one experience to another. Right? If you don't have a cyclical story, then there's nothing to take from one context to another that's exportable. Now, you gave me three mechanisms, I think at least in your story. One um, is economic overstretch, in which case I think you sounded a lot like Paul Kennedy, right? That is, you get larger, you grow your empire, you get your resources drawn upon, they draw, they draw down the, uh, you know, the economic stimulus you need to keep your empire and then eventually collapse. The second, you told the virtue story, right? It gets larger, it's harder to maintain the civic virtue and patriotism upon which free institutions depend, and eventually then right, you get uh, moral decline. And you told the centralization story, right? That is, as you get larger, you end up having to... Um, bureaucratize, right, it's harder because you're spread out in lots of places, you need to end up in sort of uh, devolving power down to officers on the ground who are hard to check from the center, right, from some senate, and therefore you end up getting a more or less hierarchical system replacing the checks and balances of a republican system. Now, uh, first of all, do you think that, which of those do you think is really the mechanism that's causing you to predict eventual American decline in uh, of empire, right? Because if you buy the third, what you did, right? You said eventually we're going to go the way of Rome. The question is, what are we going to leave behind, right? That's as I, what I took as your lesson. First of all, which of those mechanisms do you really think is relevant to the American case? 
And the case of the third mechanism isn't the case that that's where technology really does make something different, right? Given that the fact that in the time of Rome, it really wasn't possible for the uh, for the Senate to really know what was going on at the uh, the fringes of the empire. Whereas now technology does make it possible for the American Senate to immediately ask Paul Bremer, you know, about exactly how he's governing Iraq. That is, it does actually make the possibility of countervailing power possible in a way that it wasn't possible for the Roman and the British. Okay, now give me your three mechanisms. <laughs> 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 well, one economic overstretch, two moral decline, and third centralization. Centralization, economic overstretch. Well, I, I would not claim that a cyclical view of this was unique to given or to ancient historians. It's what Plato said. It's what Aristotle said. It's what Polybius said. Uh, and it is based on something that I don't think your technology has changed yet, and that is human nature. Human nature never changes. Now, maybe you will change it with DNA structuring and but uh, <laughs> <laughs> human nature does not change, and that is why the founders believe that similar circumstances will always produce similar events. Well, that's not an ancient historian's point of view. It's the finest minds of antiquity believe it. Uh, as for these mechanisms that you talk about, uh, you start, I think, with the assumption that the cycle is not going to affect us. See, you're like William Sarine, the writer, who said, I knew everybody had to die, but I thought an exception would be made in my case. <laughs> and that's what you're convinced of. And you see, I would ask you right now, I ask my students, how many did you think that a professor will be standing here talking about the Americans to people 2,000 years from now in a whole different world, maybe on Mars. And students will be writing down notes about these Americans, and they'll come up afterwards and say, well, you only gave them one lecture, they're going to be on the test. <laughs> and we'll be showing you ruins. They will be showing you these golden arches. <laughs> the world. And they're going to, and archaeologists are going to say, and they always do, this is a religious shrine. <laughs> we don't know what this, all the details of this cult, but they had these huge kitchens where sacrifices were made. And they worshipped this figure called Ronald. And very few students will put up their hands, and most of you will say, oh no, we will live forever. And of course, that's what the Romans called themselves, eternal. Eternitas. As the sun always rose and set, the pantheon stated in concrete, so the empire of Rome will be forever. If for a few days or years it seems weak, it will come back ever stronger. We will be eternal. That's what you think. Well, it's just not going to happen. I don't care with all your technology. It's not going to happen. Therapy said, all things human pass away, and things will pass away. And that's just a fact. I would say that your mechanisms are very interesting. Uh, but you might also say that as civic virtue declines, and more people say, well, I don't care what happens to the rest of the world as long as we are prosperous, <coughs> civic virtue declines, then you need more bureaucracy. You need more laws. You need more centralization because people themselves will not assume their responsibility. Now, the founders were also very aware that for every liberty you enjoy, there is a corresponding responsibility. We are today mainly concerned, and it's just a fact, with our freedoms and very little with the responsibility. 
And part of that responsibility may very well be to bring peace and stability to the world. Professor Malcolm. My question is just on that point. You made a good um, argument about how unusual we are and similar to the Romans in being the one overarching superpower. Um, But the Romans traded security for liberty in order to have this empire. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered whether you thought that there was some possibility we could You've come to the very point of, of, the, of the talk. But it is quite true that the Romans did not so much trade liberty for security as in their own minds come to equate liberty with security and peace. And for them, under Augustus, liberty became equated with security. And I think for us, that is the most important aspect of liberty. Economic security, political security, and avoiding the responsibility, say, of serving in the army. That, too, was part of the change of Rome, from a citizen army, a citizen militia, to a professional army of competent soldiers. Uh, I would say the lesson of Roman history is you cannot have both that political liberty and be a superpower. And it goes back to the excellent question you raised, which is, on the whole, people don't want to pay that price. And they will elect an administration that panders to them. And I think that could well be catastrophic. A number of questions. Yes, you, right in the center. Thank you. Could you talk for a moment about that sliver of Roman history where they moved from the democratic ideal to the benevolent despot? And how did that transition develop? And what parallels to our current situation, if any, might be available? Well, in Rome's scope, um, the parallels might be very difficult for us to fathom and to see because. But essentially, and this is stated very boldly, foreign policy proved to be too much for the Romans to handle under their Republican constitution. And uh, there was too much vacillation in Roman foreign policy. Uh, People were elected who promised all kinds of things that they could not deliver. Until ultimately, these foreign policy issues began to press desperately upon Rome. And the Romans were terrified, for example, of invasion by Gauls and Germans. So they turned to a figure like Julius Caesar who could get it done, who could conquer Gaul, who could bring about settlements in the east, happened under Pompey. And uh, effectively, foreign policy led to a situation in which the Romans believed, and it was in fact true, that only a single, highly efficient dictator could protect them from all the foreign policy problems they had created. And they had also, and I'm sure this is not true of us at all, given such a figure as Caesar, with all his genius, the tool to put an end to their political liberty, which was a professional army, which was ultimately loyal to him and not to the Constitution. And so with this professional standing army, with the general view of many Romans that he was their best solution, and with the widespread support of the provinces, who had become utterly 
despairing of any good government under the Republic. The transformation was made. Caesar was assassinated, but his adopted son, as I said, was the most gifted statesman in history. And he taught the Romans how to swallow this pill of dictatorship by coding it and leaving the facade of their old free constitution. The consuls were still elected, there was still a senate, but in fact, the emperor gathered all real power into his hands. And that's one of the lessons the founders would have said you could find in Roman history. That's one reason they feared a standing army so much. That seems silly to us today, does it not? We do not fear a standing army, but the founders of our country believed that such a large standing army was only had its only purpose, the oppression of the people and taking away their liberty. And they took that lesson from Rome. It's one of the prerogatives of the moderator that she can sometimes pose a question as well, so I'd like to do so. Um, you spoke quite extensively about those circumstances that led to Rome's collapse from without. But if I, I remember my Machiavelli's discourses correctly, uh, not only can empires fall republics from without, but they can also rot from within. And that certainly seems to have been one of the factors that, that led to the decline of Rome. Could you speak a little bit about that and draw some parallels to, for America? Yes, let's see that there are two issues here, though. One, but given and the founders sometimes meant by the decline of Rome, was the fall of the republic and the loss of that republic of liberty. And in that image, and it's also one found among... Um, for example, William Hooper, he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he wrote a long letter comparing Britain to, to Rome. And by that view, the Roman Empire, when we think it's at its height in the first and second centuries AD, was just a shell, because what had made it special, liberty, was gone. And it was this military despotism. On the other hand, the actual decline and fall of the Roman Empire, what we normally mean by it, is the fall of Roman political power. Uh, it's just my opinion these days that it was brought out almost entirely by foreign policy. That um, significant foreign policy mistakes were made, above all the failure to conquer and annex Iran, the failure to conquer and annex Central Europe to transform the Germans into what had happened with the Gauls, to make them peaceful and Romanized, and that this, these foreign policy decisions ultimately brought about the collapse of the empire, because they exposed the Romans to a two-front war, both in the Middle East and all along the Rhine and Danube. And they were simply not capable, ultimately, of dealing with it. And it coincided with political instability. It coincided with an outbreak of plague that ravaged the empire for almost a century. So you don't think that the excesses of the Romans had anything to do no, with absolutely that? absolutely not. The, or just, the ordinary Roman was just as, just as decent and Generous as we are. All Americans. <laughs> <laughs> we have, have presidents and others who outrage some people's morals, but uh, they're just there. They were in Rome with a fine, decent family person. Questions? <laughs> yes, gentlemen at the, at the back. Yes. Hi. Um, I was wondering uh, what, uh, what lessons classical history uh, could give regarding the role of role or effect, I guess, of a rival superpower like China in uh, international relations? You know, that's an extremely interesting question uh, because uh, China is an um, important figure in this whole equation. And I didn't talk about China at all. Uh, Rome certainly had not challengers, but the empire of Iran was a power. 
that Rome was never able to conquer and annex. Iran was an empire which, on the whole, was not expansionistic against the Romans for much of their time. But they reacted very, very vigorously to attempts by the Romans to invade their territory. Until ultimately, the Iranians, revitalized by fundamentalism, not Islam, but by the religion of Zoroaster, the worship of a monster, decided that they had to put it into the Roman thread and they became expansionistic. Now, I'm not sure China is totally different from that. That China is a power, but as long as its borders are not aggressively threatened by us, I don't know if China is the same kind of expansionistic threat that I believe Russia to be. But what you ask is extremely interesting, and I'm pondering it a great deal right now. You're asking it to make me keep pondering it. Uh, but another answer to your question is, a balance of power between two great powers, I think, invariably fails. I do not think over the long run you can have a balance of power, whether it's between four nations, two nations, five nations. I do not think a balance of power is a viable long-term means of security peace. This is provoking a wonderful discussion, but we have time for about two more questions. And there's a, a gentleman who has his hand right here. The cost of the, some of the businesses which I own, I'm on the Pentagon's uh, bidding list. And I have the opportunity to see the incredible high-tech, terrible weapons that are on the drawing boards for the next 30 years or more. They will be our Roman legions, possibly, to protect against a revitalized and economically stable Russia, and a China, which if they get their economic banking act together, will also be a threat. But even with our high-tech Roman legions maybe protecting us for the next 60 years or a little more, uh, I keep on falling back upon the Roman collapse from within in that by the third century, Roman's welfare system for the Roman century was now hereditary. And it became not only hereditary, but the, bed, the bread had to be baked. So you had a rot out of a welfare system. You had a pseudo or phony prosperity which helped Rome through the first and second century of plunder and slavery, which brought great wealth into the empire, but after a while, the empire resorted to taxation of its people, which became exorbitant, and inflation, which became clipping and terrible, to the point where by the fourth century, you had Romans that were actually fleeing to the Gauls. You know, the barbarians offered a better life of freedom by the fourth century than the Roman structure did. So even though I see maybe salvation in the near, near term for a China and a Russia. In the long run, I don't see salvation for us because of the economic and the, quote, welfare rot from within. And I was curious about your comments. Two aspects of your question. One of these weapons of mass destruction. And that's why I think that our failure to continue with this could be catastrophic. That is to say, I believe that a world state may be the only means 
are controlling the spread and use of the weapons. The weapons which are <coughs> ironically are not weapons of mass destruction. No. They're very, very interesting. Well, They're whatever, but that's very really accurate. <laughs> well, but people do get killed by them, right? Yes. 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 See, I mean, I think free people is an ass. They're getting killed. That's why. But the second, you asked this question, though. I'm not sure the Roman Empire, the fact I'm quite certain, the Roman Empire, the first and second, did not rest upon a phony prosperity. It's a serious, productive society. And the welfare state that you talked about was really what Winston Churchill envisioned for Britain. That is to say, a safety net below which the ordinary person could not fall. And this had no impact whatsoever upon the Romans' hard work and commercial instincts. So the empire of the first and second century rested upon a very good prosperity brought about by a free market economy. And I think what happened in the third century was the force of these foreign policy issues and uh, military defeats brought about the economic collapse. But I will ponder that some. Yeah, but I have a question about uh, the. Uh, it seemed to me the one export that that Rome never had was freedom, uh, freedom under their law, perhaps, but not freedom as we term it, democracy. Uh, I'd like you to comment on that. I don't believe that they're the different states ever elected their own leaders. I believe they were given their leaders by Rome. And I believe that Woodrow Wilson, who, who may have uh, coined the phrase, make the world safe for democracy, I found that in one of his speeches. I don't know whether that was the first or not. But I think that's what's in Bush's mind. I think it was in Reagan's mind. That democracy is a weapon of mass seduction. <laughs> that we need people to love it enough to elect their own leaders and not have a problem of control. It's almost like the Peace Corps teach them how to become free. And could you comment again? I feel we are much too uh, discouraged or forgetful about those wonderful figures uh, that you quick went over very quickly about Germany, Japan. How many people were, were electing free governments when Woodrow Wilson said, make it free for democracy? And how many are electing free governments today, percentage-wise? It must be a tremendous increase. And well, I'm Bush, Bush is hanging his whole program on more of the same. Oh, well, I agree. I mean, that's what I said. More people live in freedom today than in the entire history because of the United States. Uh, however, the Romans did export their idea of freedom uh, in two ways. First of all, they gave a great deal of local control to the cities throughout their empire. That's why Jesus is first brought before the Sanhedrin. That is part of the freedom of the Jews to handle their own internal matters. So local domestic matters, the Romans preferred to be treated by the locals. But secondly, they exported this idea of freedom under the law, from Spain all the way out to Syria. Now, it was the freedom as I defined it for you, freedom to live as you chose, freedom from political involvement, freedom to follow your own occupation, freedom to take care of your family, 
with a certain set of individual rights. Now, I'm going to tell you that is a definition of freedom that an awful lot of people around the world, and even in this country, might think is all right. So they exported that concept of freedom under the law. That was not political liberty, the right to vote, but they exported that, and were very successful in it. You have a question? The idea was mentioned by this gentleman uh, before the last one about slavery in Rome. Why get some information that at one time at the height of the Roman Empire, slaves outnumbered uh, Romans. They had brought in slaves from all over their world, and that this became a very pervasive and strong force in the demise of the people. Well, that's uh, this idea that the Roman Empire was essentially a slave society, and its economy was a slave-based economy. That's a Marxist view. And it's filtered down and is taught by a lot of ancient historians today. They had slaves, there's no question about it. I do not think slavery was in any sense the central economic productive force in Rome. Secondly, and this is interesting too, the Romans, like the Athenians, saw no contradiction between slavery and liberty. That is to say, the Greeks, the Athenians, believed they were the freest people in the world. At the same time, they had slaves, and their women had no real political rights. The Romans, again, believed that they had liberty, but they kept slaves. They even invoked natural law to say, yes, God may have created all men free, but the laws of man have simply reduced them to slavery, and we must deal with that fact. Now, we can reject that and think that's terrible. On the other hand, the founders of our country said all men are created equal and adopted our constitution, but there was slavery in the country, and women did not have the right to vote. So I don't think we should be too quick to say that the Romans were just incomprehensible to us. I see one more student hand up, and I will give the last word to you, Michael. Um, I was just wondering, the model you're referring to that you're sort of um, predicting for Americans to choose between at some point in time, uh, probably at the time of a crisis, in which the citizens can turn over a lot of their um, fundamental liberties to a, um, a sovereign power. Um, I wonder if you see any precedent for that in American history. <coughs> I'm thinking of um, during the Great Depression when uh, Franklin Roosevelt was president and his Congress. Um, they were re-elected, you know, an unprecedented number of times um, in order to face this crisis that was so um, threatening to American society. Um, so we came out of that sort of a little wiser, maybe. We enacted legislation, uh, amended the Constitution to prevent sort of a similar thing happening again. I wonder if you think that's a possibility. We could temporarily turn over power to a, uh, a leader and then come out of that. Well, see, that's a wonderful final question. <coughs> it leaves us with one important thing to remember. The Romans did not one day just have a vote and say, do you want to dictate? There's a long process in which by a series of laws and by fits and starts, simply the Romans gave up their political liberty. But it was no one single act. Just one crisis after another was met in various ways until ultimately 
the Romans no longer had political liberty, but they never made a concrete decision one day. Uh, secondly, you see, I am not pessimistic. You keep telling me I'm pessimistic, but I'm not. And again, um, the American people, Harry Truman said, have common sense. And his remarkable statement of our Constitution that we have faced these tremendous crises like the American Civil War. And you think about it, in 1864, in the midst of this bloodiest war in our country's history, we held an election. And Lincoln could very well have lost. Now that's just a fact. It amazed the Europeans. Then, the time of the Great Depression, even in 1936, there was an election. There was an election in 1940. And, you know, dealing with their own sinister past, the Europeans thought that September 11th would lead to all kinds of major changes. It is not. And we'll have an election in 2004 and President Bush may very well lose. Now, I think that's extraordinary. And I go back to Harry Truman. The American people have common sense. Somebody gets too big for their britches, let's put them out of business. Now, that's interesting. Harry Truman's favorite author was Plutarch. Whenever I have a big, serious political problem, he says, I do not listen to my advisors. I sit down with old Plutarch, and he has more sense than he can advise his life So, thank you very much. For